0: This is Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the personal journeys of innovators and change makers. We talk to the doers and thinkers of our time to understand what motivates them and why they do what they do.
1: Brought to you by your hosts, Anne and and the entire CDTM podcast team in Munich.
0: In this week's episode, Passion Fruit is on the menu, as we are happy to welcome Jen and Michelle, the co-founders of Passion Fruit, a company that is aiming to empower the independent businesses of tomorrow. But before founding Passion Fruit, both Jen and Michelle gained various significant experience in other companies. Jen, with her business administration degree, comes from a strong VC perspective, Michelle, with her computer science degree, contributed to the backend development at Airbnb, Shopify, as well as iCloud. Together, they now build a solution for creators that allows the creators to maximize their time spent on value creation and minimizes the effort for all the overhead work. Throughout the episode, we will dive deeper into how Michelle and Jen met, how the funding process of PassionFruit worked, and how they approached the never ending challenge of recruiting the exact right talent for PassionFruit. Welcome Jen, welcome Michelle. Uh, we're really looking forward to this episode and deep dive into what it takes to build a new and upcoming product. Thank you so much for inviting us to come on the on the podcast show. Yeah,
2: thanks for the invite. We're happy to be here. Yeah, so my name is Jen. I'm one of the co-founders of Passion Fruit and started this company last last year. Up until then, I was actually sitting on the other side of the table, being a VC investor at B2B Partners, uh, which was an early stage venture capital firm. So also seeing basically the entrepreneurship or startup side from different angles. And I studied initially business in at the Mannheim University and then in Paris, Madrid and Berlin Then at uh, ECP Europe and worked yeah in a lot of different stations i'm michelle i grew up
3: in silicon valley and i started my career working at airbnb on the payments processing team there so really got to get my hands dirty with all aspects of the business like learned more about finance and legal and business development all of that stuff and the reason why i'm actually here today as the cto of passion fruit is jen reached out to me i was living in berlin Relocated to Berlin, working at Shopify, Jen reached out to me, and we really connected over the shared value of wanting to start a company to be like role models for other women or minorities or people that you just don't traditionally see as founders.
1: The whole story about how you guys discovered each other and met and decided to co found together sparks a lot of questions about trust. So as far as i understand the two of you were strangers when when you decided that you're going to found together and founding together ends up intertwining each life your life with your co-founder's life in more ways than one can imagine and i imagine this this would be very difficult to do with somebody who's practically a stranger to you so how did you guys decide to make the leap of faith
3: even though initially I wasn't planning on founding a company. After speaking with Jen, we really connected over this shared value of wanting to start a company to be role models for other women or minority people. And I think from there, we definitely connected on other things as well, including how we want to start, run our company, how we want to actually build a business. We both really wanted to build a product that is loved and
0: widely used. So I'm actually really curious because, I don't know, some some people start startups because they want to earn money. Some have a product in mind. But you actually started out to, to be role models, as you just said. And I think that's a very different motivation. How do you take that into the whole deciding what product to go for, deciding what company to go for stage?
2: I think, as you said, there are always different motivations for founding a company i think it's always a mix of you know personal motivation seeing an idea or industry evolving changes in the market which come together which then you know like lead to that idea or to that specific start of a company but i think overall what drove us together as as three co-founders so jens michelle and i is really the shared belief that our society should be more diverse and inclusive and equal. And that's also how it should be reflected when building the product, when building the company. And I think that's kind of what brought us together to start a company together. And in terms of the idea or the industry we're tackling, we do see that the creator economy is a way to really, you know, empower, yeah, more economic mobility, more upward mobility, really empowering individuals over institutions. So we do see that the creator economy and the industry we're operating in does reflect our values. And I think that's why we feel also so committed to that.
3: Yeah, I think for me, I have like, also a different take on this because when I picked companies, I want to work for like when I worked for Airbnb, it was a very value and mission driven company. And the way that Airbnb makes money is actually by enabling people to make money over, you know, renting out a room in their home. Like it enables people to be entrepreneurs with the resources they already have. And also when I worked for Shopify, it was kind of the same thing where, you know, It's allowing people to start businesses and therefore giving more power to individuals so when jen came to me and said hey you know the creator economy is this cool space we think creators are the next generation of businesses i kind of just saw it as a logical next step it was already aligned with the values of how i was picking where to work before and the space was kind of new there was no winners yet and it just felt exciting
1: so Passion Fruit is what we've been talking about all this while. This is a company that, as per your LinkedIn, you started less than a year ago in September 21. Now, I know that companies in their uh, teething phases undergo a lot of changes in terms of what their mission is, what they're trying to do.
2: So I think last year when I set out and decided to quit my VC job and to found a company, I you know like knew that... I want to build a team that is aligned with my values and found co-founders who are mission driven, value driven, and also think big and think globally. And that was kind of how I went about. I met Jens 10 years ago, actually, when we studied in Mannheim together during our bachelor studies. And we went our different both our different ways and then i actually saw him posting that he is leaving get your guide so he was there actually the day of the head of day trips at get your guide to found our own company and then we basically had a walk and we really felt that we clicked in terms of how we want to build a company what kind of ideas we're looking at and the third co-founder obviously having a business background you need to look beyond your network because also your network can be very homogeneous right so we didn't want to take on a third business co-founder but we needed a technical co-founder right and i think that's also where you need to just look beyond your network and that's also then how i reach out to michelle And in the end, what we did was a very, very long co-founder dating process. So we actually went on a couple of dates. There are these set of 50 questions from first round capital, which we went through in a couple of sessions. And we worked together actually on, on the project and then, what we did is we actually traveled together. We rented a house, we did a sprint with a lot of workshops, ideation. We took our plus ones because we really wanted to test you know how do we work together, but also how do we get along you know each other because this is gonna be a long ride. This is like a marriage, so yes, I think in certain ways, you can always you know create your luck, so I think. We, we don't know how it will go, right? We, we cannot um, look into the future, but I think overall you need to also trust your gut at some point. And the last thing I actually even did reference calls like an investor on, on Jens. I, t- I talked with his former boss and I asked him how he is. I talked with his colleagues. So um, there is some certain due diligence which you can do, but then you also just need to trust each other.
0: So it sounds like you had a very, very systematic approach, which I guess also kind of is related to your past VC experience, right? So you've you've seen the other side. And how do you not fall out of love with the, the process?
2: Yeah, I mean, in the end, I think you need to pair it always with basically having a systematic process, you know, like getting data in. So that's kind of how I used to work, as you pointed out, as a VC, right? But then obviously pairing that also with my gut feeling and just how it felt in the end, it was about reflecting together with each other after the process. How do we actually feel? How did this week make us feel? How comfortable are we with each other? How much energy do we feel when we are brainstorming with each other? So that's something which obviously data cannot give you. So it's, I think, about pairing those two approaches together, which I hope will, yeah, lead to a successful outcome at some point. And how I uh, decided for Michelle, for me, it was it was love at first sight, actually, because in the end <laughs> I only talked to her. I didn't talk to, you know, like 20 other CTOs, uh, which other founders are also doing. I talked with her and I knew, okay, this is her. Like she really encompassed the values and how you also see the world right and then obviously also her technical skills and how she grew up in the us bringing in completely another perspective and for us diversity of thought is super important to build a global tech company so this mix of everything was for me like then very clear that she's she's the one
3: yeah. I mean, I think for me, when I first went to chat with Jen, it was more kind of just networking, right? Like, let me just get to know more people in Berlin. I'm new to the city. And we really clicked on this like first call because she was talking about trying to diversify the VC space. And that was something that resonated strongly with me. And that's how she like opened the conversation. And so very immediately, I think we just understood that we had a very similar view on the world we had a very similar view on like what our purpose was in the world and what we wanted to achieve and also just when you start a company with someone it can't be about the money and i think it was really about like what else we wanted to do together
1: so we have done some uh, background research on on you guys but why don't you give our listeners a an elevator pitch about passion fruit where you're standing right now, and how you guys aspire to reach a product market fit.
2: Overall, maybe to to come also with with how we came up with Passion Fruit, one of the career choices I actually considered as a VC was, uh, was becoming a creator. So I had a day job and that was investing. And with the 2020 pandemic, a lot of things happened, right? So I look for a way to voice my opinion and tech startups which have a positive impact. So I started actually a newsletter, Tech for Good, which is sharing uh, content about startups which have a positive impact on, on the society and the environment. And I really liked it and I got good feedback on that content. At the same time, I was building up Two Hearts as a community, a tech community, which aims at diversifying the European tech ecosystem. And that's also where really I considered making the jump and becoming a full time creator and building a business out of that. So I started to talk to a lot of creators, podcasters, YouTubers, people who write newsletters. And I saw this explosion of you know, people who suddenly started to create content because they had more time. And that's when we really realized this is a completely new generation of entrepreneurs, which is evolving through this. And from there, what we then realized is that a lot of creators are spending time on their administrative and business activities rather than creating content, and they're lacking completely the infrastructure and software to run their businesses. So in the end, we believe creators are the next generation of businesses, and Passion Fruit empowers those with our tool.
3: Yeah, so as Jen mentioned, she interviewed a lot of creators, and she found out that their biggest pain point is actually that they're spending much more time on admin than actually creative work. I think there was a statistic that 70% of their time is actually spent on admin. And if you just quit your full-time job to become a creative and you're just spending this much time doing administrating things, answering emails, answering DMs, trying to to wrap your head around how you can actually turn your passion into your livelihood. There's a lot of ways in which we can help that. So our main goal in building our first version of the product is actually just helping creators manage the business that they already have more smoothly. So in terms of finding market product market fit, our goal is to just dive really deeply into the workflows of creators. and figure out which ones we can automate in a tool and also just stay focused, right? I think the biggest goal is to actually just build something small, but powerful.
0: (laughs) So regarding these strong and kind of small MVPs in the beginning, what does just shipping it mean to you and how do you handle the kind of this compromise of wanting to create the best product and also wanting to create a product quickly?
3: Yeah, so I think actually this compromise is the tension between me and Jen as co-founders. So I'm the technical founder, right? Everything that we decide that we want to build, I have to figure out how we do it. And the more things and the more features, the more customizations, the more custom use cases we have to build, the longer it's going to take. Jen, on the other hand, she comes from the user research side, so a lot of times, she is the advocate for the customer, and we just negotiate. Like, I want to build something small. Every single feature that we kind of had in our prototype and we're trying to convert into our roadmap, we just debate. Like, is this something so critical that you want to sp- like spend more time building it? Or is this something that's negotiable and something that we can think about building later? We need to have this balance.
1: Michelle, a follow-up for you. What you described right now is in terms of the feature or the functional scope of the product, right? But what about uh, technical debt? Now, I know that many founders who are in the nascent stages of their, their startups, they are cutting corners in terms of code quality, in terms of you know just, just shipping something that is likely to run into a lot of bugs and problems. But just for the sake of uh, shipping an MVP, they still go ahead and do it. What's your opinion about this? Is it sustainable? How do you balance the two things?
3: Yeah, well, that's a great question because I worked for scale-up companies that had a lot of technical debt. My time at Airbnb, I would say a lot of times I was just kind of wrangling with legacy code. So I actually personally have this big fear of technical debt. The balance that I found partially was just hiring people with more of an MVP mindset. And there's a similar sort of negotiation. like. What sorts of things can we cut corners now that won't be so consequential? Like maybe we're not going to write tests for the code if the functionality is going to change for the sake of getting it out the door. But I definitely think that I'm planning on budgeting time after we have some users and some customers in order to actually clean up the technical debt. I think having a code base that's free of technical debt actually allows you to ship features faster in the long run and keeping the code quality up is
0: it's worth the time. So regarding the tech stack that you're using right now, do you plan on keeping it or do you think that it's quite likely you discard discarded and built with something entirely different afterwards?
3: So I think one strategy that we're using, and I think a lot of startups are doing this, is actually leveraging no code or low code tools to build parts of the product that are not so core. In general, I think we are building on a code base. We're using Remix, which is this new JavaScript stack. I don't think that anything in code I have the intention of throwing away, but I know realistically that maybe at some point it will have to be rebuilt, but we're trying to avoid investing too deeply into code and trying to use other ways of getting validation that are quicker
1: yeah, I think that's one lesson that they keep giving us in these uh, theoretical venture building uh, classes also. Use Figma as much as possible for getting feedback. So we we we'd come back to the product and how you guys are going about building it, but we had also a couple of questions about the VC and the tech landscape, especially in Europe. So we pulled up a couple of statistics and found out that only 8.8% of the capital in 2021 went to mixed gender founding teams in Europe. Jen, maybe this question is to you. How is is the, the landscape right now in the VC industry? How inclusive is it, is it in these aspects?
2: I think if you look at the numbers, uh, you have your answer. Probably not very uh, diverse nor inclusive. In the end, it's difficult to also solve this problem just you know with one specific solution, but you need to tackle it from different angles. You need more diverse investors on the other side, uh, more diverse investment team members who are not only juniors, but are actually check writers. That's one thing. But I think just to be aware of that and looking beyond your typical network and really being active in sourcing more diverse founders and underrepresented founders, I think that's crucial because in the end, if your network is, you know, 99% are all white male founders or investors, then surprise, surprise, the deal flow you're seeing will be the same. So you really need to be very intentional about And I think that's where some VCs are a little bit missing their messaging and their
0: real action then. So 50% of your angel investors are currently either female or from underrepresented minorities. And of course, we wonder how did you put your cap table together regarding diversity? And how does this focus on diverse investors also affect your fundraising process?
2: Yeah, I mean, in the end, when we went out for our fundraising process, I think we really asked, you know, ourselves two questions. One, obviously, is what distinctive values or insights or network does the investor have to really, you know, be a good partner to us? And the second one was also, do they share the values around uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity? And With that kind of mindset, where we went also into the discussions with VCs and could decide a little bit based on that as well. Obviously, they have to be good, they have to be top tier, but they also need to share the same values around that. And we're lucky to have found, you know, Sabina and Beata from CREANDUM who we felt their mission aligned or value aligned with us. In terms of the angels, our goal was to build a diverse cap table because we're in the end building a diverse, you know, global company, which also serves a diverse customer base. So in the end, I would say it was maybe a little bit more difficult sometimes, or we also had to be very, very intentional, but it does work. You know, like it's not a pipeline problem as many are
1: pointing it out. In our discussion right now, and it also seems like all your digital footprint that we found on the internet, that there's a lot of focus on diversity and inclusion. Can you explain to us why these values are so important to us? Like, I I do understand why they are in general important, but, but why are they so important to the two of you?
3: I think for anyone who is passionate about diversity, you have some sort of personal story related to it. And for me, growing up in Silicon Valley and being around, you know, tech and actually my mom works also in like software, both my parents work in, you know, the hardware Silicon Valley industry and I never really realized that there was a diversity problem in tech world, because when I was growing up, my parents were saying, like, when you grow up, you can do anything. I had a good education and all of these things. But then when I went to college, I studied at UC Berkeley and I was in the intro computer science class. I really started to enjoy it. And that's when someone pointed out to me like, oh, there's like a diversity problem in computer science at Berkeley. Like there's not very many women. And that was the first time I like realized, hmm, how many other females were there in my class? And I realized that I couldn't actually remember in the 40 student section that I sat in, whether there was another female classmate. And later I was working at Airbnb and there were a lot of new grads and female developers actually that were fresh out of college. But then when you looked at the management layer above, suddenly out of the 12 managers, there was only one or two women. And then the next five layers above to the CEO, you didn't see anyone who is female at all. And then you also start reading the material on why, you know, what's the problem here? And. It's very frustrating to feel like there's like this glass ceiling. Like for me, I had all of the privileges that I needed to be very successful, but I still felt like it was an impossible fight to the top of the food chain in these tech companies. And I think in the end, there's different ways that this problem can be fixed. Like partially, I think there just needs to be more women leaders. And there needs to be more diverse leaders and therefore young people to basically have role models to aspire to. Uh, But there also needs to be intention of bringing more people in. I think based on my past experiences, I just felt very strongly about trying to use the privileges I've had to have the career I have to actually bring more people up with me.
1: And one of the other ways to fix this problem is essentially reservation or affirmative action. And governments have been doing it for for many, many years in order to uplift people who are underrepresented in any part of uh, work or society. Often, I, I don't get the chance to ask this question, but you guys are going to or may have already framed policy as well as value systems for your company. What do you guys think about reservation? Is that something that you would be inclined to do in the process of hiring people for your company in order to be able to bolster the diversity and inclusion aspects of your workforce?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure specifically quotas or like saying this person has to be from this background is necessarily the way that we're going to grow. I think in general, it's more about thinking about who is not at the table and what populations are not actually included in the company and being intentional in making sure that when we are hiring we are interviewing people from you know different diverse backgrounds i think our whole company is around eight people so i can't tell you exactly how that strategy will look but i don't think it will ever be like oh well there's this one seat and this one seat has to be filled by a woman. i think you still have to hire the best person for the job but i think it's much more about being intentional about where you're sourcing your candidates from. I think longer term, having like mentorship programs or volunteering with different organizations that actually do have specific focuses, you know, like there's organizations that focus for on women in tech or black people in tech or so on. And I think just by partnering with that and building a pipeline of candidates coming from different
0: organizations would be the way that I would try to go about it. So regarding finding the perfect candidate for a job or for a position, what is the magic ingredient to hiring diverse tech talent? What kind of tools do you use to find the right people? And what are your criteria to decide these people are right or they're not right?
3: Yeah, so I guess in terms of finding
0: talent, I think we have
3: rather had an easy time doing that we've had a lot of candidates that saw the picture of us as three diverse co-founders and they just said like cool you guys are different very refreshing like we want to come work for you so i think one thing is that we were very intentional also about our company values so we do have a culture interview i actually borrowed a lot of it from when i worked at airbnb because it's also a company that has strong culture and i think you know one of the biggest parts of like our culture that i think is important is like having a feedback driven and being open receptive to feedback
2: yeah i mean we have a we set out a a very as you know me structured process so we have uh roughly like five steps and we were also very intentional about it so Uh, Usually we have an intro call with one of the co-founders, then technical interview, culture interview. They usually talk even with one of our investors uh, or advisors from the network to get a bigger understanding. Because in the end, hiring a founding team in and early employees, they should treat these opportunities as investors themselves. In the end, they're betting on this company and on the success of the company by going or really going into a risky opportunity here. So in the end, we want them also to talk actually to our investors or provide them the opportunity so that they also understand, hey, what's my upside potential here? So we really try to basically showing them different angles as as much as possible and doing a mix of video calls, but obviously also
0: personal meetings if they want to, to get to know each other. So Jen, one more follow up to you regarding this founding from a VC perspective. So with many founders we've talked to in the past, they say the best experience for founding is founding itself. But for you, I feel like it, it's, it's a great advantage that you've seen the other side and you've read the rule book, it appears. So you've have all these processes in mind and you have a plan for every stage and really made up your mind in that process. Do you think it's an advantage? to have VC experience as a founder? Or do you think it's sometimes also hindering you because you know so much and you know where all this goes? I
2: would say in some areas it does help, in some areas it doesn't help at all. So where obviously it helps is expectation management. Like I saw a lot of founders and companies, I can see how long it can take, what could go wrong, Um, co-founder conflicts, obviously, but also fundraising, right? Like I, as you said, I know the rules of the game, Um, I'm speaking the language, knowing the rules of the game is still different though than actually like playing the game, right? So it was still different for me, but it definitely put me in a privileged position. That's one thing. But then there are areas which, you know, I've never done before. I mean, very, very uh, operational work, actually, you know, hiring and finding the best product designers or, or developers out there doing a content strategy, doing marketing, that's something I've never done as a VC. And I've, I've never been that hands on as a VC. Right. So th- that's what I said. That's what I would say as a it does prepare you in some ways and not at all in other ways.
0: And with the in your founding team, you are a mixed male and female team. And I wonder, in comparison, was there anything that was different for you founding as female entrepreneurs? Would you say you had it more difficult at any stage or had a completely different journey at any point in time? In terms of
2: fundraising, I would say no, or at least not that we're aware of, you know, in the terms of questions we got, etc. But you never know, right? Why people, for example, reject you could be also because of uh, unconscious bias, but I would say overall, no. And in terms of being a female founder, I would say so far, also, it's more that we're channeling this to, to our advantage, I would say rather, like, being different is also good. In the last years, you always try to fit in, but now I think we're really embracing being different and and channeling this more in a positive way.
1: People tend to use the terms creator and influencer quite interchangeably. Do you see them as the same thing or do you see them as two different user segments of your product?
2: We see it as a different segment, even though there is, I would say, I wouldn't say an overlap, but creator is also a very wide defined term, which is hard to define. Overall, we define creators as anyone who is creating content online and monetizes that it could be either their passion or their knowledge and is building up a media brand with that. Oftentimes, those are even people who have, you know, very little following or are hackers or builders who are building digital products and Microsoft businesses. So in the end, that's not really or they wouldn't call themselves influencers, they're rather like gathering a community around them. So that's where we rather see the difference difference between that and that's yeah how we are usually differentiating it
1: I know this is a question that's been asked multiple times but I I still feel that uh, since there's the two of you with us today we can ask this once more what do you think we as academia or as a society or as an industry can do more for there to be more female founders in the startup ecosystem and please feel free to speak from the multiple experiences that you've had
3: I'm not so sure about the entrepreneurship part, but I think being a founder in Germany is actually quite difficult because of all of the paperwork that has to be done. So I think that's definitely one hurdle that probably could be like reduced. I think we had to go to the notary so many times and I guess in terms of inspiring more women to be founders, it's definitely just sharing the story of other female founders and showing them
2: that they can do it too. I think there's really a lot of different ways we we need to obviously tackle that. one Misha already pointed out, we need more representation, we need role models because what you you know can't see you can't be. Uh, I think that's really clear. then also having more diverse investment team members who are funding actually than diverse founders or even you know like non diverse investment team people, but who are just aware of of their bias and and are still investing in underrepresented founders, I think is is another way. I'm not sure about quota, but I also feel that it's been so many years since, you know, we've been talking about this and nothing has really changed. So I do feel though that at some point, at at least for companies who just are not able to do it, there, there have to be quotas, otherwise they're just not doing it. So from some VCs, we actually heard. That they are putting quotas on their portfolio companies, so if they're not reaching a certain uh, level of diversity in their C-level team, they're actually not gonna continue to fund them. And I think that's an interesting way, also to you know, to try to to actively kind of push founders to build more diverse teams, because otherwise, I feel like society has been talking
0: so much about it, and there's not too much which has changed. So you posted some learnings from creators on Twitter and one being that you should hire help even before you're ready. How does that work and what was the moment in time where you decided you needed extra help?
2: Yeah, I think it goes back to to working with creators. And in the end, if we're saying creators are actually the next generation of entrepreneurs and, and companies, for them, it's really difficult to make this transition from I'm a content creator to... I'm actually a CEO of my mini media company. And I think that's where they need to actually realize that they should delegate activities and hire people for certain aspects of their business so that they're also not creatively burning out because that's also what we've been seeing a lot. So that's kind of where the learning came from.
0: So looking on the website of Passion Food, we found this interesting quote saying that you envision a future in which everyone can make a living by sharing their truest and authentic self. I wonder how that works practically. Do you think that creating could be the new basic income of the future? Interesting. Maybe not basic income, but it's a new
2: way of entrepreneurship and basically living and working on your own terms with your own voice. I think that's kind of more how we see it. It's so easy now. The barriers of entry are so much easier to create content, right? You just need sometimes your smartphone to to create content and then actually suddenly to start making money with that. So that's kind of where we also come in. It's super easy to create content, but how do you actually build a sustainable business out of that? How do you actually continue to make money? And sharing your true, authentic self really comes from the fact that a lot of creators we saw are quitting, you know, their corporate job during the great resignation starting to go full-time on their passion projects which is like you guys you have a podcast other people started like me a newsletter and are going into full-time because they really really love it and in that sense creativity it's it's really a new way of creative entrepreneurship so i think that's how we rather see it rather than uh, a new way of income
1: all right so follow-up then in that case so a lot of the creator economy is built on the back of social media platforms. And there are many negative connotations that are associated with social media nowadays. What, what is your view on this? And was it ever at any point a moral dilemma for you guys that you're you know, building a business which is on top of a technology that is fairly controversial nowadays?
3: Well, I think that's one reason why we're focusing on the administrative side, because I think that platforms are not gonna be forever. And a lot of creators too, can get like delisted from platforms if they say things that you know the platforms do not value and it's very easy to completely lose your following so i think that's like one aspect of it where we know that the platforms aren't necessarily the best way of monetizing or they're not the most sustainable way of making money but creators are still using it it is still a channel in which that their business is reliant on and we are gonna focus on helping them with the parts that are not tied to the platform. In terms of like moral dilemma, you know, technology itself, it's neutral. It's about kind of the way that technology is used, like whether it's good or bad or not necessarily bad on purpose, but has negative impacts on society. I think in the end, it's not like necessarily a moral dilemma, but more like we want to carve our space out on the internet and show that you can do it in a good way, or you can do it in a right way. And we want to build a platform that stands by its values. So in some way, it's kind of standing up to the platforms that are more controversial, I think, by starting a business. And I think in the longer term, some of these platforms may continue to live, some of them may die, new ones will pop up. In
0: our first episode of this season, we had a guest called Hassam who said that he doesn't believe in passion and I think this is very interesting and a very different standpoint from the passion economy so what happens to those people who rather do what they're good at instead of following their passion what happens to the project managers and to the accountants who maybe don't wake up and think this is my passion but rather they are just excelling at what they do I think Steve Jobs also said it or some big Silicon Valley guy. But in the end,
2: what happened to them? So what happened to them in the last year is that a lot of accountants and lawyers quit their job, took their knowledge and expertise and then taught thousands of, of people then online on YouTube or on TikTok about taxes and accounting, which was super boring in, in the past, but now is being basically bringing into the society on a more mass scale right you can either teach physically in a room or you can teach millions of people around the world and i think that's more what we saw in in terms of that and i do agree with you that there are always going to be people who don't want to be creators for sure It's, it's a little bit risky as well right it's being an entrepreneur it's living and working on your own terms but you don't have, you know, employee benefits, you don't have to have insurance necessarily. So there's probably always going to be people who are continuing working in corporates or startups even. But I think more and more people are just questioning or thinking about what is it what they want to do in their life. And now we have so many more opportunities to, to live on your own and work on your own terms. And that's why more and more people are taking this jump.
0: And what do you think is the future then of monetization going to be? Is it still advertising revenue shares, like right now on the social media platforms, or tipping, paid subscription, or is there something completely new coming up to make a living from creating?
2: Yeah, I mean, for now, I think it's anyway, a mix of all of that, especially for the middle class of creators. So a lot of creators don't, for example, survive solely by being on Patreon or solely by being on YouTube. So you always need to have this multi Q approach. And then going forward, obviously, there are new ways. I mean, now we see with Web3, there are a lot of new approaches being explored. And then it will be interesting for us to see how how this really evolves, but I think it will be, it has to be always a mix of everything because otherwise we're back to the power law where only a few creators win, they're gaining most of the following and, and then the monetization and the rest is losing out. So to really build a sus- more sustainable creator middle class, we—we we, it has to be a mix of all.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you you mention a creator middle class. So as just a distant observer, it seems like it's either some creators who are making it really big, who have millions of followers on on social media platforms, and then there are those who are just scraping by, they're they're hardly getting any traction. Does this middle class really exist? And how do you think Passion Fruit is going to contribute to, to its existence?
2: Yeah, I do believe, like in terms of working actually with with those creators who are part of this middle class who made the jump already, and our full time creators are just you know starting out, maybe hiring their first one or two persons in, and are starting to scale. So we do see that middle class definitely already existing, and that's why our mission is also how do we you know empower them with the tools, with even working capital, with financial products to actually you know scale their their business because right now it's really a chicken and egg problem they want to scale and grow further but they need also revenue obviously for that so they cannot really hire someone there's not really a venture capital industry around the creator economy so that's why there are a lot of different ways which are explored around revenue-based financing or working capital, which can then be provided to creators, uh, incubators or accelerators for creators. So it's really very, very similar to the startup ecosystem. And I do believe that in that sense, middle class can exist. They just need the right tools for that.
1: All right, great. So I think now is a good time for us to move into the last segment of this episode, which is, uh, you might have seen it, it's called The Toolbox. It's like a rapid fire where we ask you just one line questions about uh, the favorite book that uh, you would recommend to everybody, a podcast and so on. All right guys, so what is one book that everybody should read?
2: Principles by Ray Dalio.
0: Yeah, I don't have a great answer for that. Then maybe you have an answer to, what is an app that everybody should download?
3: I really like Headspace for meditation.
1: Is there maybe a podcast that you love listening to?
2: 99% Invisible.
0: On Purpose by Jay Shetty. What is a founder that you know, that we probably don't know, but we should look into for the next season or the next year, like somebody who you think is doing something cool and we should be aware of. Rebecca
2: from one of the co-founders of Remy. They're building a culture platform for remote teams. Nice.
1: Thanks a lot, Michelle and Jen, for joining us for this episode. It was great to have you guys.
2: Thank you so much for the very, very thoughtful questions. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. I had a lot of fun. (laughs)
0: The Mostly Awesome Podcast is brought to you by CDTM, the Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork together with Annabelle Schäfer, Frederik Junge, Kai Kirsch, and Julia Koslovska. If you like our podcast and you would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and tell your friends about Mostly Awesome. We would like to invite inspiring guests with diverse cultural backgrounds to our podcast. Our inbox podcast at cdtm.de is always open for your feedback or any warm intros. Thanks for tuning in and see you in two weeks or talk to you in two weeks.